This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Poen, and I am one of your co-hosts. And of course, as always, I am joined by my other half, F. Scott Field. And today on the show, we have a very prominent physical therapist here. We welcome tonight, Dr. Eric Draconis. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, he's an orthopedic physical therapist, researcher, and educator. He is an associate professor at the University of St. Augustine Health Sciences in St. Augustine, Florida. And he has numerous publications and research contributions regarding shoulder exercise and rotator cuff tendinopathy. While at St. Augustine, he also runs an advocacy program in which students can sign up during their lunch hour to hear from Eric and other guests to discuss advocacy and other issues related to the physical therapy profession. He is also the Director of Education and Research at Advanced Therapy and Wellness, and he is the Director of Clinician Development at Talent PT Staffing. He works in the clinic with individuals recovering from musculoskeletal injuries, pain, or those who desire improved physical performance. He provides practicing PTs and an array of continuing education seminars surrounding the topics of exercise prescription and musculoskeletal rehabilitation. He is a faculty member for the Institute of Clinical Excellence in which he teaches the Extremity Syndromes course. And I actually first met Eric at um, his first course with ICE at Flint, Michigan this past summer. He's also completed a ton of professional service and public service for the community and for the profession. And he's even been awarded um, the Rick Schutz Community Service Award from the Florida Physical Therapy Association, along with the American Physical Therapy Association's Emerging Leader Award in 2010. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists, Manual, Th- Manual Therapy Certification from University of St. Augustine, Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Now, Eric, Thanks so much for all your dedication and passion for the profession, as you clearly have and and continue to make significant contributions to the clinical, educational, service, research, and advocacy aspects. Now, of course, I realize I kept your bio very brief compared to what you've done and accomplished in your career thus far, but, you know, was there anything that I didn't mention in the intro that you'd like our listeners to know about you? No, I think that's it, Brandon. I appreciate it. I, I think that the advocacy stuff is is the one area that I'm most fired up about. You know, that's what I get excited to talk about, and um, I would love to dive into that deeper. Yeah, Eric. Uh, in in your opinion, what are some of the biggest issues that we're facing regarding academia and DPT education, and, and what is being done to advocate for these solutions to these issues? That's a good question. It's it's tricky. I mean, there's so many, right? I mean, the the big elephant in the room everybody kind of, um, I guess, talks about is the cost of education. So when you compare the cost of education versus the um, return on investment or the potential salary that a physical therapist makes, I think we are all astutely aware of that being the number one problem. Unfortunately, I guess the second part of your question, what what's being done to advocate for that or what's being done to as a solution for that, I, I don't know. 
um, that we're doing a whole lot. I mean, you've got some innovative programs, right, that are trying to create shorter programs, trying to create more efficient programs. That's important. But I just think it's something that we all need to be aware of. We all need to work towards um, the universities, university administrators, I think our accrediting bodies. You know, it's just the growth in our profession is tremendous. And, and you hope that we're not seeing some type of a bubble, right, where, where people eventually will recognize the return on investment isn't, isn't what it used to be and, and eventually possibly lose potential applicants would, would be bad. I don't, I mean, I don't think that like the whole, like, and when I'm you know, usually involved in advocacy, it's just that it's like legislation and, you know, social change and looking at uh, public awareness and stuff like that. And that's not really where, where I see the solution to this issue of the cost of education. This is probably, it's a supply and demand thing, right? So as long as there are consumers or, or in, other, in this case, potential students wanting to get into PT school you know, you have sort of, I guess, if you will, a, a seller's market, right? And so being able to um, raise tuition rates or have a high tuition rate is, is kind of um, up to the market. We, what I think you'll, you'll see, right? And so like you, if you have certain programs that are able to do it more efficiently um, at a cheaper cost, I mean, you know, Typical capitalism would tell you that those would be successful and that if there is a problem, if there is some type of a bubble, um, if we do see a downturn in applicant pools, that those programs would probably thrive. So I think it's probably up to every program to ensure its own sustainability and to ensure ensure its own long-term success just to have an eye on that, have an eye on tuition and have an eye on um, cost. Now, that's not the only, you know, the original question that was, of what needs to change in academia. That's not the only thing. It's just, I think, the most important, um, the one that should be talked about the most. But but there's certainly other ways we can update our curriculums and look at the future physical therapists and teach to the future physical therapists instead of maybe the physical therapists of today or even yesterday. Yeah, Eric, I think that's a perfect segue even kind of into our next question. And Eric, what specific changes do you feel that DPT programs are going to need to make in order to advance our future clinicians to more of a physical therapist version 2.0? It's just, I, I did a little stint in administration and, and was, um, you know, serving in, in a kind of assistant program director role for a little while and really wanted to focus on this a lot. And it's getting all the faculty to, to teach to the future of the profession. So, so envision the physical therapist of 2030 right? We're in 2017 now. Envision this physical therapist that's, that's 13 years down the road. What is that practice going to look like? And, and what components of physical therapist practice will be present in the future that maybe aren't present today? And so the whole shift towards uh, wellness and prevention and all, I know you, know you guys have Mike Eisenhardt on recently. And so like that whole model, right, that makes perfect sense. There, there's a tremendous opportunity there in the healthcare market to be on the preventative side of disease. And we, as a profession, I think are in the perfect position to do that. So you could certainly, um, you know, teach towards that or, or integrate that type of, of content in your curriculum. I, th- I think more d- differential diagnosis, I recently have started uh, teaching that course. I'm so excited. It's like uh, an area that I'm not, you know, haven't historically had a lot of training in, not super strong in, but the lead faculty member for the course is a uh, is a physician assistant and a PT, right? So he's got dual degree. And he is just the um, most skilled clinician in this area that I've ever gotten to work with. And so like learning from him and seeing the way that he teaches differential diagnosis is so much fun. 
But to me, that's huge, right? We're going to get more and more direct access patients. Our scope of practice is going to dramatically improve over the next couple of decades. And so we need to be prepared to meet that challenge. And I think you know, having that frontline provider mentality, having those differential diagnostic skills, um, being able to get right at the, the key kind of issues and really um, not get caught up too much in the weeds like we have historically. So like, I'll give you a good example. Historically, right, we used to spend in our curriculum, uh, I, I can't even imagine how many hours on joint mobility testing, right? Joint mobility, thousands, let's just, let's just say that, I don't, thousands of hours training on joint mobility testing, right? But maybe four or five hours on nutrition, maybe maybe really not even looking at you know healthy um, activity modifications, lifestyle changes, exercise-based interventions from a preventative standpoint. And so maybe investing more time in those types of things and less times on the minutia of the orthopedic um, aspect of the curriculum might be valuable. Yeah, for sure, Eric. I think you bring up a couple of really good points in that. And, you know, with all those changes, of course, to add in for that future physical therapist, I know you before you kind of talked about regards to these unique different programs that are going to, that are kind of um, emerging now to have more of that innovative model and such. And I'm curious as to your opinion as well on, do you think that things are going to change in terms of, you know, the content that's going to be tested on the national licensing exam and the curriculum changes in CAPTI? Do you think that's something that's going to change as well? I, I think that those um, those things are constantly evolving, right? My understanding, I'm not a, by no means am I a CAPTI expert or, or a FSBPT expert, but um, I do believe that they, they, there is a lot, there is revisions that go into that. So like I know, for instance, on our faculty, we have a lot of people that are item writers for the board exam, right? And so those people go to FSBPT, they go to the headquarters in Virginia every couple of years and they write questions for the test. So the content, you know, on the board exam certainly is evolving because you're constantly bringing in item writers to write, you know, contemporary questions. And then I know, you know, CAPTI revisions, we constantly, when I, I had a lot of experience going through accreditation um, processes with CAPTI for our program, and there are revisions uh, that happen quite frequently. And so, like, I'll give you an example. Most recently, that we, I had a thing, and it was like, make sure, you know, where are the role of genetics in your curriculum and how genetics relate to, um, you know, different conditions that we see and stuff like that. And that's not something that was there previously. So I think, um, you know, just like anything, right, there's evolution. It's just a matter of how dramatic is it and how fast does it occur? Wow. Yeah, Eric, uh, you know, advocacy is such an important topic, uh, especially with the issues that our profession has been facing and introducing these students to these issues and, you know, and ha how to be a part of the solution is really critical because they're just starting their careers out, right? They're just starting to help shape their professional mindset. So, I mean, what do you think is the best way to incorporate advocacy into DPT programs? It's it's so critically important. I, I just, I've always recognized that our profession is not where it needs to be, right? The education and skill set of the physical therapist isn't reflected in current practice, in current law, right? So in your state, how many state practice acts for PT practice truly reflect the education and skill set of the physical therapist? It's very hard to find one that does, right? We have a tremendous sort of set of skills that we can benefit society tremendously with, and yet we're limited legally in what we can do. So that that is an injustice, right? That needs to be changed. Then then on the other side of that, society isn't aware of the education skill set and value that the physical therapist brings to the healthcare model. So, 
those to me are, are two of the most important issues that every student needs to be intimately familiar with. And, you know, it, it has to occur in, on day one. I, I truly believe that. And I notice that over the years. When I slip and I don't invest as much time on the advocacy aspect of our program for our students in the early phase of their development, so first semester when they get in, if we don't get into one of their classes in the first three, four weeks and, and uh, try to recruit them to come to the voluntary advocacy meeting, really sell it to them, really help them understand, we'll get a drop in participation. That class will go through the entire curriculum with less participation uh, th throughout their entire time. I'd be willing to say that class will graduate less leaders, less passionate physical therapists who go on to make big changes and make things happen in our profession. Conversely, the class where we get in early and we start hitting them with all the issues and help them better understand you know, the problems at hand and why they need to be involved in the big picture. It's so important that they get the why behind it all, right? So it's like Simon Sinek, start with why. They need to understand why this is all important. You go in there and tell them, hey, you need to be a member of the APTA. Hey, this is what we're working on. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fly right over their heads. They're, they're not going to care. But if you explain why, usually that gets them in. So anyway, when you get them in early like that and you embed these experiences into the course courses, into the program, uh, they tend to really buy into it. They drink the Kool-Aid, if you will, and they, um, they, will, they will eventually take it on their own. They will become almost self-sustaining in their involvement and in, in the way that they pursue advocacy and, and try to do all the important things that we want to help see them, you know, move the profession forward. Yeah. And Eric, I know with the, um, the method that you've done also incorporating, um, you know, the advocacy hour at lunchtime, I think that's a fantastic idea. And, and, you know, do you think you could kind of tell our listeners a little bit about kind of what you kind of do with that program? Yeah. So that started in 2008, I was doing the fellowship uh, down there in, at University of St. Augustine and um, actually went to one of the kind of owners of the school back then, you know, it was, it was privately owned. And uh, Dr. Patlin, I said, you know, nowhere in the curriculum are we talking about the, and at that time, it big thing was direct access through Medicare, uh, POPs, physician owned, that was a hot topic, you know, physician owned practice. And uh, therapy cap, which has been like <laughs> an issue for 20 years, right? Um, and and anyway, and she was like, "Yeah, go for it, go ahead." You know, and she came with me to the first one and like kind of mentored me along. It was really really cool uh, the the way that it worked out. But that caught on like wildfire, and we and we had our first guest speaker was Bob Rowe. He's in Jacksonville at the time. He's the president of AOMPT, and you know, just a, an incredible leader in our profession. And and he, of course, like all the leaders, all the big people are always so willing to give their time for stuff like this. So he's like, yeah, I'll come down for lunch. You know, so he came down, talked to about 50 of our students, got them all fired up, you know, and, and, and that group of students was kind of the first group. They went to Washington, D.C. They raised money, went to the Federal Affairs Forum in Washington, D.C. for APTA, lobbying Congress on behalf of, um, you know, the APTA and the patients that we serve and the, and the therapists that are members. And, um, Kind of went from there. We we converted it to give it a little bit more of a business angle a couple years ago because it just felt like there wasn't enough. Everybody says this, right? There's not enough business education in PT school, which makes sense because PT school you're trying to learn the basics of practice, be a safe practitioner, pass the boards, all that. Um, but certainly not enough business information. And what uh, what we did was we started bringing in kind of leaders in the world of business, and so um, you know people talking about marketing and how to start your own practice, 
Um, any any cash based practice, you know, anything you can think of, kind of within the PT world of, of business, uh, that went over like a big hit. The number one session we've ever had, and number one in attendance, probably had like well over 100 students, 130 students. Was we did the topic of salary negotiation. So anybody that's out there looking to start one of these types of things, if you're in your school, if you can make it a little bit about finances and bring in some maybe salary negotiation uh, discussion tips like that, it gets it gets the students involved for sure. Yeah, for sure, and I think that could even be used as a pretty good selling point too to future students. Like, hey, this program we incorporate this too, you know, because we realize that the situation here with the with the money and stuff, but we're actually looking for ways to help our students through that. So I think that'd be a good. Um, added thing in there. I think that's a good idea. And, you know, kind of even going back to kind of more of the advocacy route, Eric, what are some of the barriers that you, or others that you know, for that matter, have come across with being a supporter for advocacy within education? And why do you believe that these problems exist, if there are any? Well, the the number one problem is that it's not a mandatory, I mean, it is actually, there there is a CAPTI criteria that integrates I can't quote it word for word, but it integrates this topic to some degree. So they do want to they do want to know that students are exposed to the professional issues. They do want to know that the students uh, understand how to address those issues and kind of what's being done. And I've heard of faculty really uh, integrating, almost embedding into a course, right, the component of professional advocacy and getting into direct access or physician-owned referral for profit and you know dry needling, whatever the the, the issues, right. The number one barrier, I think, is probably if you don't have a faculty member, right, who's involved in the profession and really trying to drive the profession forward, it's going to be hard, right? I mean, how, how are you going to trickle these concepts and this passion down to the student body if there aren't, if there isn't faculty leadership sort of, sort of actively practicing it and actively doing it? So I think that's one barrier. You want to try to hire faculty that are involved and, and not involved in the way of like they serve on a committee because it's a requirement of being a faculty member involved. Like they wake up every morning fired up to drive the profession forward and they, and they, you know, they eat and breathe this, this stuff. That's, that's, I think the kind of person you want. And then the other barrier is time, right? So like students, and I get this a lot of students say, I'm, I'm want to be involved. I want to do this, but we have like six tests this week and I'm slammed and I get it. Right. That's understandable. What I tell them is, you know, because they'll say something, they'll, they'll, they'll use the word, they'll say, I can't afford to come to the advocacy forum. I just don't have enough time. And, I, and I'll respond with, you can't afford not to come. Because when you come to the advocacy forum and you understand the issues and you become more passionate about the profession and you understand what you need to do to drive the profession forward, everything else becomes easy. That anatomy test all of a sudden doesn't feel so hard. You also have more passion you know, as you, as you study. And as you pursue, you know, the different components of the curriculum. And so I think it, it helps you understand the big picture, which focuses you, which makes school more enjoyable, you know, more, and you're more successful. Yeah, Eric, that's a great point. It's almost like an investment on your future self, right? Because if you're not investing in the profession, really, you know, you're, you're doing damage to your own career in the future. We make them all be members of the APTA. Why are we members of the APTA? And you get the typical... You know, we, we I understand like I get the journal. I understand that I get like discounts on some things. And I'm like, no, 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 hold on. This has nothing to do with that. This is insurance for your career, right? The APTA is pretty much the only organization that is on Capitol Hill on a daily basis representing you. 
And so that's the only prayer you have of having any legislative representation whatsoever. When these issues arise with Medicare and direct access and scope of practice and you know payment reform, that, that's, your, that's your representation. I'd gladly pay somebody 500 bucks a year to take care of all that for me. I mean, that's, that's um, well worth it. Yeah, I, I that's one of the reasons that I, I say this time and time again, but it's one of the reasons that I'm paying my APTA dues and, and you know, putting money toward the pack because, you know, I don't know a lot of those things. I'd love to learn more, but at the very least, I know I can support the people who do know it and, and who can do the, the good work that we need done for the, the field of physical therapy. So, Eric, I have a two-parter on this next one here. Uh the first question is, what do you think are some of the most effective strategies that one can use to maybe address with some of the higher ups in the DPT program uh, to really hammer home the fact that av- advocacy is really needed? And part two of this question is, do you think that we might need to look into changing candidacy for faculty um, and adding maybe an advocacy component? I do. The, the second thing, so here's the thing about the second part of that, right? When you look at a faculty member, uh, do they get the big picture? Are they trying to drive the profession forward? This, what we're talking about, is best embedded within a course. So rather than have people come to lunch and I bring in Jerry Durham to talk about, um, you know, private practice or payment or something like that, right? And, and instead of that, when we are covering hip osteoarthritis in our orthopedic class, we talk about the prevalence of hip replacement, the costs related to osteoarthritis, the management strategies that exist, and the opportunities for physical therapists in private practice to go out and create osteoarthritis prevention programs or rehabilitation programs. So you're literally embedding it all, right? Rather than saying you have a class on private practice or business, you have a class on musculoskeletal, it's all kind of threaded, right? Threading is a key. Yeah. Um, Big, big picture kind of naturally woven in throughout the semester. Exactly. And then the, the, the first part of your, your question, F Scott. So like the, um, you know, how do you influence the, the higher ups? How do you influence the big, big change in the, in the program? This is my whole thing. And I, and I, and I've never really been successful with this and nobody's actually given me a, a, a good response yet, but I still think this is the way to angle it. The health of the profession, right, is directly correlated to the health of the program and the university. So if if you are looking to create a legacy program that is healthy financially and strong and, 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 you know, does great work and graduates amazing students year after year after year, you need a healthy, strong profession. And the stronger the profession is, the, the, the greater our scope of practice, right, the greater need in, in, in education to, um, you know, to have a high level educational experience. So you're literally strengthening your own program by strengthening the, the profession inadvertently. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Eric. And, you know, Eric, for all the PTs and SPTs out there who are perhaps not aware about this, where do you recommend that people go to learn more about the current issues facing PT and how to contribute to the solutions through advocacy? APTA.org, for sure. Uh, that's an awesome resource. I was going to try to type it in real quick and tell you the button, but it, I'm pretty sure you click on something like advocacy or legislation or something like that, and you will have days worth of reading content. They break it down into kind of federal issues and state issues. And, um, you know, so that's important, right? It's important to get familiar with the federal issues, things that that we would address in Capitol Hill. Going to the federal, I don't know what they call it now. It used to be the Federal Affairs Forum. I think it's now it's like the Federal Advocacy and Payment Forum or something like that. But 
that's held every year um, in usually like Alexandria, kind of Washington, D.C. area. And you you go, you get about a day's worth of programming where you learn about all the issues. They have lots of guest speakers. They have congressmen and women. They have lobbyists. All these people come and talk to you. And then you, uh, you the next day you go out and you lobby you know, the government on Capitol Hill. And so you go visit with your lawmakers alongside other PTs and, and students. And um, it's just such an awesome experience. They do the same thing usually at the state level too. Most states will have the same type of a, an event. Interesting, Eric. And I, I just looked up online and you do not have to be an APTA member to access that. So that's free and open to anyone who goes online. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Eric, you kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, the cost of the DPT programs are rising, and that's basically the market that's kind of causing that. You know, the market dictates what the price of these programs are, but where does all that money go for the educational costs? I'd, l- I'd love to know the answer to that. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with that end of the spectrum. I mean, I can, I, I, yeah, yeah, like the state university system, I have no idea how that works. I have no idea how the public system works. I mean, in a, in a for-profit private institution, I'm, I'm imagining it goes into the, uh, you know, the, the shareholders or where, wherever profits of the business go. Um, but it's a good question. I mean, I would love to know, you know, what is the profit margin for a DPT program? I, I, I think some programs are probably actually operating at a loss. I mean, you do have some public schools, state schools, that, that have lower tuition and probably are utilizing state, or I know actually are utilizing state funding to keep the program afloat. So they're not entirely tuition um, sustaining. But John Childs made this point once. I, I, he spoke at the Graham sessions and he said, um, whether it's a private or a public school, we're, you are paying the tuition. And what he meant was like, it's either your tax dollars or your direct tuition dollars, but we're all paying for you know, DPT education in some, to some degree. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Eric, I want to pivot a little bit here and ask you a little bit more personal question. Um, You've done a lot of teaching over the years, right? And I'd like to know maybe some of the differences that you have found in teaching online versus teaching in the classroom versus teaching a CEU class. Like, do you notice any market differences amongst the different types of teaching? Yes, it's huge. Um, I mean, like my skill set does not necessarily lie in online teaching, right? That's something I've had to really work on and develop over the years. It, it takes a different, uh, different skill set. It really does. There are, we have some faculty that are so amazing at online instruction, and they will provide a completely different experience for a student in an online cr- classroom than than a faculty member that's not as um, good at that. So. You know, it just it's just engagement, right? How do you engage the students? Are you good at engaging people face to face? Do you do you come alive in the lab and can you really show, you know, people for the psychomotor skills aspect of it or the or the hands-on component? Um, or are you are you really good with technology or really good at stimulating critical thinking and engagement in an online environment? I mean, it, online is tough, right? Because there's a distance between between the the instructor and the student. And you lo- losing that face-to-face component hurts me. I-, I think that I'm less connected, less engaged, because I'm just not as skilled at it. Con Ed is is a whole different world, right? Because continuing education is kind of kind of nice. I actually really love it because these are clinicians who are struggling with day-to-day clinical dilemmas. So they come to you with a whole different kind of mindset. 
than an entry-level student does. And, that, and the entry-level students are great as well because that's like a blank slate, right? You can help them build kind of their career and their practice philosophy. But in, in, in Con Ed, I think the stakes are a little higher. You, know, you really got to deliver and, and help people you know, improve clinically. Yeah, for sure. And I think even, Eric, what you did was you know, you would, at least from the class one I took from you, is you were able to really break down kind of the big concepts, basically also with the research as well, but also add in some different spins on different ways and really kind of, and I love how you were able to modify it based on the clinician. Like you, you kind of t- targeted those that are working in more of an active and sports environment compared to those working more in a geriatric environment to kind of make sure you hit all angles. And I think that was very important and very helpful. Yeah, I would like to say, so like one thing I think like for teachers, right, we're all like kind of good at, at something, right? It's almost like a clinician. You sort of have your angle, your your niche, your thing that you're good at. And, um, and one of them that I think is important that I've always tried to work on is being able to really break down concepts in an easy to digest manner. And, and then from there, once you break it down and everybody's kind of on the same page and they all really understand where, where we're headed, then adding complexity. Right. And it's sort of I mean, I'm sure F. Scott, you know this from your EDD, like uh, educational um, theory. Right. And looking at the domains of learning and all that sort of stuff. But being able to do that kind of quickly on the fly is 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 pretty, pretty important. Yeah, very important, but also very difficult. I'm learning it definitely takes time and practice. Yeah, those are some good points, guys. And, you know, Eric, we normally ask this question at the end of each episode, kind of as a wrap up to all our guests, because we're curious what everyone's thoughts are. Um, but the question is, if you could change one aspect of DPT or healthcare education, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Yeah, thanks, guys. I um, I listened to a lot of your episodes in, in preparing for this. I've heard a lot of people answer this question. I heard um, Todd Davenport answer this question. He had an awesome answer. A lot of people have had great answers. But um, I thought about this a lot and I thought, what would be one thing that would give us the most bang for our buck? That would be relatively simple to, to, to do. And it's and it's simple, 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 right? I would advocate for a schedule change. What I mean by that is currently, right, you do all your didactic learning in the first year, year and a half of your PT program, two years sometimes, and then you go on internships. So that that's a bit of a fragmented process in, in and of itself. And I, I think all of us remember that as going through PT school, right? Where like the daily grind of class all day long, I'm learning all this stuff, but I'm not applying it right away. That I think you lose a huge opportunity to cement some skills and some learning. So my schedule change would be class in the morning, clinic in the afternoon. Now it's only going to work for a small PT program that has a large number of clinics and facilities around it. And any ACCE listening to this is like wants to shoot me right now. They're like, you, you know, you. you. <laughs> <laughs> but I I heard this. Somebody from like New Zealand told me this once. They said when I went to school in the '80s or maybe it was Australia, we we treat we took class in the morning and then you went out and you treated patients all afternoon. So can you imagine the learning that would occur if I'm in the morning dissecting the shoulder in the anatomy lab, then I go to my biomechanics class and my ortho class, I'm practicing my techniques, and then in the afternoon, I immediately have to deal with Glenda, who has rotator cuff pathology. And I immediately apply all the skills that I learned in the morning on a real live patient scenario. And I do that throughout the entire curriculum. Same total number of hours, same amount of internships, you know, but it'd be, uh, I think it'd be awesome. Yeah, definitely a, an interesting take on that, Eric. I think it would be 
difficult coordinating some of it, uh, given if you, you know, like you said, you kind of learned about the shoulder, then you had to go treat a shoulder patient. Well, you had to have a shoulder patient ready and, w- and willing, you know. So I definitely think that could uh, pose some some difficult scheduling things. But I, I definitely like the outlook. I like the out- outlook on that. Um, well, Eric, I, I just want to take a moment to thank you personally for, for all the help and guidance that you've given me in the world of uh, my journey and, and, and the direction I'm trying to head or not head uh, regarding academia and, and just general education. Uh, so thank you for that. But would you mind telling our audience a little bit about where they can find you online and on social media? Yes, I am at E. Chaconis on Twitter, E-C-H-A-C-O-N-A-S. Not as frequent on Twitter these days. Like I'll check it like once at night or something and every now and then make a little comment or something. But um, I'm on Facebook a lot these days. So I'm on Facebook. And then with the Institute of Clinical Excellence, we try to do like a daily show. And so I'll get in there on Tuesdays every now and then. So you can see me there. I try to post little techniques, little tips, kind of short little five to eight minute kind of technique tips. People tend to tend to like that. So that's a lot of fun. But yeah, anytime anybody needs me, reach out, please do. I have a website, chaconispt.com. And that has my contact info also. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on tonight. We appreciate your time. Yeah, we do, man. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, guys. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.